Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the podcast, So It's Cancer. It's a podcast dedicated to being a how-to manual for cancer patients and their friends and families. Each month, we'll work through different elements of the overall problem, from soup to nuts, as they say. Beginning at the beginning, such as the basics of what cancer is, who may be at risk, who is involved in the treatments, why treatments differ so much from one cancer to another, or even within the same type of cancer. The podcast works through the various possible outcomes and quality of life. We felt the need for a physician-led podcast series that is patient-centric. It helps to have a chat with your physician. Only that chat is usually short, emotional, hard to remember, and often only a beginning. So welcome to the show. My name is Paul Roach. I'm a surgical oncologist. Uh, we've got with us uh, Peter Schlegel, a medical oncologist, Michael Reardon, a graphic designer, and our, we are really excited to present our special guest, Dr. Eva Galka. Welcome, Eva. Thank you. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Um, Tell us, yeah, how did uh, where did you grow up? So I grew up in um, New Jersey. Uh, I'm an immigrant child. My parents are from Poland, and um, I uh, went to school there, and and then went to engineering school in Rutgers um, in New Jersey, and didn't really even think about medicine until I met my um, significant other who was um, in medical school. Um, in our long conversations, I recognized that what he was doing was way more cool than what I was doing. And so I said, well, I guess I could do that too. And decided to go to medical school. Um, and then on the way, um, discovered surgery rather quickly um, as as the type of specialty that I would go into. And then further along the way, discovered surgical oncology. Uh, and there you have it. Awesome. How, how did you pick surgery from the different, uh, different specialties? Well, I, I, my background has always been um, that of kind of, um, I guess, math, science, um, how do things work, and, as well as using my hands. My father was a mechanical engineer. I didn't want to be a mechanical engineer, so I went into biomedical and um, material science. Um, when I heard about medicine and thought about it, I thought, well, maybe I could use the uh, background of engineering into uh, and melding it with um medicine. And so I thought initially about orthopedics, um, and using biomaterials. Um, but I kind of rather quickly decided that orthopedics wasn't the way to go, but it yeah, really good surgery. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but really just using my hands and, and coming up with solutions and then actually doing something about it. Um, I, I don't want to disparage medicine, but more than just thinking about it, but actually being able to kind of use my hands to fix it and, and maybe, um, a lack of delayed gratification skills. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, way too long. Yeah. <laughs> so that's where surgery came in. And then, um, medical oncology, um, was never even, like it wasn't even something I thought of. I, I thought of surgery first and then surgical oncology became something that um, I became aware of and 
um, that I could have a long-term relationship with a patient as well as um, help them through a very difficult diagnosis, help them figure out what's the um, what's the right order of things and and then obviously the ability to actually make a difference from a surgical standpoint and excising tumors. Um, but really it's the journey that patients take and the long-term relationship that we form, um, not just the surgery itself. Um, and so I, I think it's unique in the surgical specialties that we, um, I will never say that I know all that the medical oncologists know, but I at least am aware of, of their options and their side of the side effects of medicines. And I can help guide patients into the order of things and, and be part of a team. And I really like that. Awesome. Fantastic. And then we, you and I met back at, uh, when you were interviewing for fellowship That's at right. University of Chicago, we managed to talk you into it. Yeah. Uh, which uh, I'm sure <laughs> there were days where you're like, oh man, I could have been anywhere, but here we are. <laughs> uh, I'm so lucky to have met you, Paul. All right, uh, Michael, Peter, how have you guys been? Good. No complaints here. Yeah, I'm doing very well. It's uh, refreshing to hear uh, Dr. Dalka uh, talk about surgical oncology and what uh, brings her to the table here, what made her a surgical oncologist, being part of the team. Uh, fighting cancer, having a mission, I, I thoroughly enjoy all those things as well. Um, it is uh, surgical oncology is definitely a high-stress uh, field with lots of rewards as is medical oncologist and, in fact, everyone who treats cancer. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's uh, the more I, I interact with my medical oncology colleagues, I realize how much how much I don't know about cancer, how much they're working with, how much stress there is. So uh, anyway, get to get back to it. Let's let's get to the subject of today, which is pancreatic cancer. Uh, Dr. Galka, Eva, um, let's just uh, what would be your average patient, let's say, or 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 pick a case, or just an average kind of uh, presentation for a person with pancreatic cancer. And maybe if you would just walk us through. Sure, absolutely. Um, so patient that I just saw um, approximately a week ago, um, and I'll explain a little bit more about the different ways that people might come to us. But the first one um, was a patient who came to the emergency room because they were bright yellow. Um, you mean their eyes or their skin? Eyes and skin. We call that jaundice and um, icterus in the eyes and jaundice in the skin, but um, really, their family members said, who hasn't seen them in a few days, said, um, oh, my gosh, you're bright yellow and um, spoke to them and um, went to their primary care doctor who clearly saw that they were jaundiced and ordered some lab tests. And their page, the lab test showed that they had some liver um, enzyme abnormalities. Um, specifically, their bilirubin was elevated, and um, the patient was not having pain at all. Um, and the primary care doctor said, "You should go right to the hospital." And so they went through the emergency room and were admitted to 
the hospital to the medicine service. And based on the lab results, a CT scan was ordered and a surgical oncology referral was ordered. Um, and so for patients who, who don't know what liver enzymes are, yeah, um, how would you describe that? Like, how does a vial of blood tell the patient that, or the doctor that it's, it's something in your liver and not somewhere else? Sure. So in this case, the patient has something that um, just by looking at them is abnormal. Their skin and eyes are yellow in color as compared to everyone else around them. Um, they might also describe that their urine has been very dark, um, almost orange in color, and um, their bowel movements might be regular, but they're very pale in color. Um, so they've lost their kind of brown coloring. Um, by lab, so that would be the first thing that a patient's family member might see. Um, it need not be too obvious, but sometimes someone who hasn't seen them in a while might say, oh, you just don't look right in color. Um, and so that might prompt them to go see their primary care doctor. The blood work um, that we're checking um, would be um, a simple blood test that everyone um, gets every once in a while where a sample of blood is taken. And they're specifically looking at um, laboratory values that are looking at how their liver is functioning. And in a normal person, um, the AST, ALT, alkaline phosphatase, bilirubin, um, which are standard liver panel or liver enzymes, um, all have a certain threshold, which is what we would say within normal limits. Can be a little abnormal if you have some liver dysfunction or uh, high cholesterol and those types of things. But in this case, two specific values would be high, um, higher than what is considered normal and sometimes really, really high. Um, and so that would be the alkaline phosphatase and total bilirubin. And those two specifically would trigger, well, this is something not liver-based, but outside of the liver. And maybe there is something causing um, an obstruction. Um, or causing those to back up into the liver and therefore back up into the bloodstream. Um, and so most physicians would recognize that those specifically could be from gallbladder disease. Many gallstones can cause it, but it can also be caused by a cancer. Um, and it. that's our worry in most cases is that it's from a cancer. We need to make sure it's not some of the simple things. Um, that could be more easily treated. Would cancer of the liver um, trigger that same discoloration in a person or is, is that? Yeah, it's a really great question. So in general, no. Um, so a cancer in the liver um, most commonly would be a like primary cancer of the liver. Um, and they don't, generally cause these abnormalities. They can when things get very severe and they're causing um, kind of blockage of the outflow of the liver. But if it's primarily in the liver, then there's so much other liver to take care of it um, that 
that doesn't really happen. Yeah. So this kind of guides us to the fact that it's where the liver exits. Um, so, and, and it's a kind of a funny thing. So we think of the liver, you know, the liver clears our blood of toxins and makes proteins and filters, does a bunch of things. And so that's blood flow going to the liver and then back to the heart. So the liver acts as a filter. But one of the functions of the liver is to actually make bile, which breaks down our foods. Uh, well, it breaks down our fats, I should say, into smaller pieces. And it's kind of going in the opposite direction. It's heading towards the bowel as a way, as opposed to back towards the heart. And in that case, the um, bile is made in the liver and kind of changed a little. We call it conjugated, but um, it doesn't really matter. But changed in the liver a little bit. And then it's heading back to the bowel to help you break down your fatty foods. And if that part has a problem, then that's when the bilirubin elevates generally. Yeah. Uh, so it I'm just, kind of gives us a little uh, hint of what part is a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just going to take a little step back here. We were talking about diagnosing somebody with pancreatic cancer and how is it, how does it present? How does someone know that they have pancreatic cancer? And, and from my point of view, it's often very dramatic. Someone has a lot of pain. It's progressive. They have weight loss. They have nausea. They can't sleep because of the pain. There's a lot of drama. And pancreatic cancer is really different from the other more common cancers like breast cancer, where yet most likely it's from a mammogram sometimes. It's a lump. Of course, you can have more advanced than that. But more typically, it's just the, something small, minor, that's really not in their face, if you will. Uh, colon cancers. Uh, likewise, you get a colon after, Oh, you got colon cancer. Oh, oh, I didn't know that. And you go through the steps. Uh, even for prostate cancer, you have a high PSA, but we, but for pancreatic cancer, it's often the presentation to the emergency room, something that's causing horrible pain, causes some dramatic changes like the yellowness, the jaundice. Someone has intractable nausea, vomiting. It, it's unfortunate, but it's, it often presents in a very dramatic way i um i was researching uh for today uh i pulled down a little thing on the clinical presentation and uh the most common presenting symptoms of people with pancreatic cancer are pain and jaundice which is that yellowish that eve is talking about and weight loss um uh also just sort of uh energy loss about 86 percent weight loss 85 percent Loss of appetite, 83%. Abdominal pain, 79%. Belly, uh, upper abdominal pain, 71%. Dark urine, 60%. Jaundice, 56%. Nausea, 50%. Back pain, 50%. Well, yeah, but I would disagree with, actually, um, you, Peter, more of the patients show up with no pain and jaundice that I see in a hospital setting um, and they've been sent by their primary or a family member there. I agree with you totally that those symptoms can occur, but many of the times the patient has had low grade discomfort, low grade nausea, weight loss that they didn't even notice was happening. And it's only until we kind of talk with them 
longer and I ask those questions that they say, yeah, I've been avoiding certain foods. And so, so there are different presentations, certainly. Um, but I would say the majority of the patients I see don't actually have pain. They have jaundice. They might even come with fever and chills and they have what we call cholangitis, which is an infection because they had obstruction of their biliary tree. Um, but, but pain is not like the often, um, those are the folks that have pancreatitis, um, that have, or low grade pancreatitis. And there are certainly patients, by the way, that have had pain and kind of nausea and vomiting, but it's been low grade and it's been going on for a very long time and they didn't develop obstructive jaundice as we call it. Um, but it's interesting. I mean, you know, like, I guess it's, it, they do certainly come in waves and, and we have different presentations and different people. Um, but most of the patients that I see, the pain is not the primary. It's, you know, weight loss that's unexpected, but they just blow it off because they feel okay. As, as I think most cancers, it's, it sneaks up on people, whether it's. Yeah. Rolling it, or. Right. It's really terrible when they have the nausea, the vomiting, the abdominal pain and the jaundice, then we're really in trouble. What's the difference between pancreatitis and then pancreatic cancer? Like what it, either would send me to a doctor, right? If I'm having symptoms, but is there anything that uh, I might you know, kind of watch out for? Yeah. So, um, Pancreatitis is a very severe pain um, due to inflammation of the pancreas. And what's really happening um, is that the pancreas, um, whose one of its primary um, goals is or uh, functions is to make juice to break down your food. Um, so I, I tell people the pancreas has three functions, three main functions. The first is to break down your food. Um, with a juice, which is like liquid Drano. It dissolves your food into different um, smaller products. The second is to make bicarbonate to neutralize the acid of your stomach. Um, and the third, and it's a totally separate function with separate cells, but they live in the pancreas, is to make insulin and other hormones. But insulin is the primary hormone to help us um, absorb our um, glucose. And those first two functions are actually juices that the pancreas makes that um, it passes through little passageways and empties into the bowel. And so pancreatitis is really a dysfunction that, uh, that allows that juice to break down the pancreas. And so it's like auto-digesting itself, if you will, and it's very, very painful. Um, and you can have pancreatitis from stones in the gallbladder or, um, from excessive alcohol use or even autoimmune causes, but also because a cancer has obstructed the passageway and then the pancreas juice just kind of starts auto digesting and causes pain. So, so, you know, um, as we talked about, we were going to talk about like, how do patients show up in my office? Um, 
one is that the patient came to their emergency room. Like I said, they were yellow. Um, they were having significant pain as Peter mentioned, or they weren't having any pain at all, but they just weren't the right color. And then just by labs, you see that they have these enzyme abnormalities that kind of point you to an obstruction. And then you have to do imaging to go searching for it. Make sure it's not the gallbladder. Oh, there's a mass in the pancreas. Okay. Now we're worried about pancreas cancer. We're not worried about gallstones. Um, But the other patient may be someone who's had multiple episodes of pancreatitis and they, I mean, in my area, they show up in multiple hospitals having abdominal pain. They might drink occasionally, but someone heard the word alcohol and they say, oh, this is because of alcohol. And they don't really look into, well, their drinking isn't excessive. Um, they don't have stones in their gallbladder. Uh, should we look a little more closely at their pancreas? Is there a mass there? And, and that actually happens, you know, probably 20% of the time for me, or they have a cyst in their pancreas. Um, not all of which are cancer and not all of which are even precancers, but they have a cyst at the wrong time, meaning they have a cyst the minute they had pancreatitis, which that's not normal. Um, that's not a result of the pancreatitis. That's perhaps a cause. And, and you know, someone hasn't put it together and then the patient's just discharged, comes back again. They didn't like the response they got from one hospital, so they go to another hospital and eventually they come to mine. And I say, gosh, you've had three episodes of pancreatitis within a year how much do you really drink? And they say, I drink a little bit, but you know, not excessive. And I say that, well, I don't believe that this is due to alcohol. And we kind of continue that workup. So that's another way, you know, that patients might show up. Right. I have a, I have a couple of questions on that, uh, you know, not being a doctor, but having watched house, you know, um, <laughs> well, then you're, you're halfway there. Exactly. Yeah, I feel like yeah. I've had medical training. If you, if you add the, uh, <laughs> 17 seasons of Grey's Anatomy, then right. that's like two thirds. <laughs> but the, the, you know, when they say they, they say, I, I only drink a little house would say, and how much do you lie? <laughs> like people don't seem to want to uh, have the doctor think poorly of them. So they don't necessarily tell you the truth on that. So I imagine that that's a, like something that you have to sort of discern. Um, I, yeah, like I usually double whatever the patient says, by the way. <laughs> um, but, but honestly, I mean, you know, I, I sit there with a patient and I say, I'm not being judgmental. I just want to get a real sense because I'm trying to figure out what's the cause here, by the way. Um, and you know, I haven't, I've gotten called after the patient's been doing this at different hospitals for several times, or even our same old hospital, my same hospital, but just multiple times, if you know what I mean. Um, and nobody's really sat down with them and it's just been assumed. And I, I think that's one of the detriments in medicine is that, you know, people take what someone else said and just assumes that it's true without re-verification, right? So what's a lot of alcohol? Well, frankly, there are people that drink every day excessively and they don't have pancreatitis, right? But then there are people who say, yeah, I have a couple drinks a week. 
and then they get pancreatitis and people are real, you know, like physicians are really quick to say, oh, well, it's due to alcohol when many times it's not. So, yeah. And now for patients, for patients, uh, they, they won't know people listening won't have a sense of the anatomic relationship between the liver and the pancreas and, and what is the biliary tree exactly. And so I don't know if there's a way to describe it without drawing it, but how would we kind of explain to people why those two are so closely related and, and how a problem in one can affect the other? Sure. <laughs> Go ahead. I think the important thing in the context of pancreatic cancer is that at some point, the patient will cross the line from being a spot or some other problem that they, hey, pancreatic cancer is a, a, a possibility here. And that leads to a number of, of procedures, tests to make sure that we know exactly what we're dealing with. So the first, first question is, do we have a diagnosis? And often, if we're talking about the first uh, patient who came in yellow jaundice, usually the next step is to do advanced imaging. CT scans are great. MRIs are probably a step up in general. Uh, we have gastroenterologists who do fancy MRCTs. It's basically like doing an EGD, looking into someone's stomach with a scope, but been able to track it up the biliary tree into the pancreas, into the liver itself. Very high-tech stuff. But that's in terms of trying to make, number one, a diagnosis, and then number two is where it is the cancer. Is it is it localized? Is it something that a surgeon can realistically take out, or is it something that's more advanced? I think that's really the genesis of why uh, Dr. Galka said, well, you know, most of my patients don't have pain, and as, as a medical oncologist where I'm, I'm more of an expertise in advanced cancer, I usually see the latter where it's... it's but anyway... Uh, the important thing is that when they're bouncing from the ER to the primary care, that somebody's going to make a notice to say, hey, this is something concerning. This could be pancreatic cancer. What are what are things that are typically going to happen at that junction? And it's my uh, experience and, and knowledge that usually it starts with a CT scan, MRIs, MRCPs are what they're called, they frequently go on, and then advanced endoscopic ultrasounds and scopes called ERCP. Yeah. The way that plays out typically is, let's say a person comes into the hospital, whether it's outpatient or it's the ER, and they have some symptoms, any of those lists that we've been talking about, and people are putting two and two together and they're trying to figure out, oh, look, this is you know more likely to be gallstones or this is more likely to be alcohol induced or whatever. But uh, they might first get an ultrasound to rule out the most common thing, which is the gallstone. That gives you a sense that it might be gallstone, maybe not. You didn't see any stones in the gallbladder. So you get a CAT scan. The CAT scan shows, gets you a little bit closer. And they call Dr. Galka and she says, I would like a triple phase pancreas protocol CAT scan. Or she'll say, I want an MRI or something. So you get even a little bit more. And then she calls her friend, the gastroenterologist and says, Hey, can you, you know, see this person for me and put a, a endoscope down and they take a scope and they, they may look at it with an ultrasound probe at the tip of the scope. So they're right next to the organ because it's deep in the center of your body. 
And then they get even more definition, maybe even a little tissue sample. And then after all of that, because this, this pancreas is in the center of your body, it's really hard to, to reach. You have to go through all of those steps in order to be able to come back to Dr. Galka and say, yes, your intuition was correct. This is pancreatic cancer. Does that help, Michael? Sure. But um, what I'm not hearing is I'm at my primary care physician for my annual checkup and they draw blood and they say, oh, you have an elevated enzyme or you know, chemistry of some sort. I'm not hearing that. Like, it, Does that mean that pancreatic cancer is one of these things that's not got an early detection sort of system about it? And I'm in trouble by the time I go to see Dr. Galka. I think you're astute. Very. You're right. Um, there is there is not a way to pre-screen for pancreas cancer with the very uh, few exception of individuals who have a high uh, family um, uh, medical history risk. Yeah, family. So, so patients who have a single or two parents with pancreas cancer or multiple siblings. Um, who may have, um, because of that high risk, been put onto a protocol where they get imaged. Um, lab work really isn't good enough. Um, then there are the few patients who have um, breast cancer or breast cancer-related syndromes, in which case they have um, known BRCA mutations, um, which is a mutation that um, has been found in breast cancer in families and in those, there's also a high risk of pancreas cancer. So they might be put on surveillance from that standpoint. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, lastly, another very common syndrome would be one that I actually see often also because I take care of melanoma um, are patients with melanoma and a family history of pancreas cancer, um, which has another kind of known associated syndrome in which case, once we catch those, um, they would be put into um, a hereditary kind of, you know, program. Aside from that, um, there really are not ways to assess this um, ahead of time. I guess the last, the last patient population I would say that, that does get some surveillance are those patients who, um, in general, just by virtue of getting a CT scan or an image for something else, we're found to have a pancreas cyst. And then um, because it's a cyst, uh, the person ordering it says, oh, uh, what do I do with this? And so um, thankfully, in many cases, they're sent to um, either myself or GI. So either to surgery or GI to kind of comment and follow. GI, help me out. Uh, gastroenterology, sorry. Yeah. So sometimes those patients, you know, from a primary care doctor or someone else who ordered a CT scan or chest scan or something where all of a sudden the radiologist notes assist in the pancreas. Um, and then those patients either might be sent to a gastroenterologist or they might be sent to, um, in my case, a surgical oncologist. And um, we follow those um, based on certain guidelines. So when we see a cyst in the pancreas, it's not a cancer, um, but it, it may have a risk for that. And so we follow those. 
So aside from those folks where we know there is high risk, unfortunately, you have to have a symptom to come to find us, um, if you will. And I guess um, certainly there are patients that have lots of symptoms, um, as mentioned, the nausea and vomiting, perhaps abdominal pain, weight loss. Um, but those are obvious. Those patients should be seen, right? They should be, something should be evaluated. It's the patient that doesn't have any of those symptoms, um, that just turns yellow, that those are the ones that are, I would say probably worst case. I I mean, I don't want to say worst case, but, but that's worrisome, right? Because they had no symptoms to prompt anyone to do evaluation. And just to take a step back so people can visualize what we're talking about is. Um, I think I could do it. I think I could do it. I do you it got it? Time. All yeah. right, go for it. So I, I do draw this for every patient. Um, me, too. But, me too. Yeah, but um, I've tried to learn how to explain it without. So if everyone can imagine when you swallow food, it goes into your esophagus and then it goes into the stomach, which is a pretty large organ. Um, and then the next um, location is the small bowel, um, the, specifically what we call the duodenum, uh, the first part of the small bowel. And just behind the stomach is this organ that is like the size of a tube of toothpaste. And it's lying sideways, um, right behind everything, right on top of the spine. And that's the pancreas. And um, just like a tube of toothpaste, it empties on one side. And that's where it's emptying the juice onto the right side. Um, The juice to help you break down your foods. That's interesting. You use it tube of toothpaste is your example. I always tell everyone it's like a long slender fish. I think I'll stick with toothpaste better. <laughs> I love it. Thank you. Um, it makes, it makes the juices years. seem like they'd be minty. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Does it actually funny. look like a Nike swoosh? I, I've heard it radiographically. It sometimes looks like a Nike swoosh, but I don't know when you're actually like an there. upside down Nike swoosh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's, <laughs> that's funny. Um, no, it's been likened to a lot of other things, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, um, the liver is this large organ on the right side of our body and, um, it filters our blood as we know, and, um, helps us with making, um, proteins, um, important proteins in our body. But the digestive portion is um, that the liver makes um, bile, which is like soap detergent, um, in that it helps us break down our fats into smaller pieces. And from the liver, all of these, um, all of the bile passes into a tube, which is like a straw, um, heading from the right side of the body to kind of close to midline. And um, that's passing through the pancreas and then entering the bowel. Um, the gallbladder is coming off of that, but it's really insignificant um, for the for this discussion. And so the tricky part about this anatomy is that um, a mass in the pancreas, like we've been talking about, a pancreas cancer, can cause um, obstruction or closure, blockage of this tube. 
And so because bile has no other way to be absorbed into the body, it backs up into the liver and then it backs up into the bloodstream. Um, and that is what causes the yellow coloring in the skin. And, um, it is also what causes the urine to become very dark, which we talked about, um, like orange, um, colored. And then because bile is what bile in the bowel getting broken down is what turns our, um, stool dark brown. Because it's missing, patients may notice that their their uh, bowel movements um, are very light in color. Awesome! Um, how's that? That's that is that is great. I love it. Well, um, this explains, you know, to a, to me as a layperson, why a doctor might be asking for a urine sample, a stool sample. I mean, e- even if they're going to run the chemistry on it, they can just look at it and determine certain things about it. But yeah. You know, Right. Okay. And so, you know, we've discussed how it might present with all the different symptoms and and signs and what we would do to diagnose it. Um, The next step, once we know that this is a cancer and we do this for every cancer is called staging. Um, And so Eva or Dr. Galka, would you mind describing what the stages are what it is and and why it matters. Sure. So when we um, <coughs> talk about staging a cancer, what we're trying to do is put people in buckets of how advanced the tumor is and its extent, so that we can compare this patient to other patients that we know have different prognoses. Um, and so staging, um, has to do with a tumor factor, um, a lymph node factor and, um, whether or not it's spread far away or what we call a metastasis factor. And so based on, um, and this is the same for all different, all tumors, but the tumor factor may be different. And in the case of pancreas cancer, it's really about what's the size of the cancer and what is it involving. Um, and then whether or not we see or we have involvement of the cancer and whether or not there's spread outside of the pancreas. And so the way I describe it to my own patients is there's probably, there's like four different buckets of how you can stage how um, pancreas cancer is thought of. There's the one where there is a tumor, it's inside of the pancreas, and it's not involving any of the surrounding structures. And we would call that um, a resectable tumor. In the staging standpoint, we might say it could be stage one or it could be stage two, and that has to do with the size of the tumor. But the way a surgeon thinks about it is it is totally in the pancreas and I feel comfortable that I could take it out right now without any other therapy immediately. Surgery first. Then there is the cancer is in the pancreas and I see something outside of the pancreas, like in the liver, usually most common location, or even 
crazier places, in the chest, in the bone, in the other places. And that is, um, if I prove it, um, if I take a sample of those tissues and I see pancreas cancer, well, then the cancer has spread and that's metastatic. And so that would be stage four um, pancreas cancer. And then there's this intermediate ground um, where we have talked about kind of the anatomy a little bit, but um, what we didn't talk about is that unfortunately where the pancreas is sitting, it's sitting right above very important blood supply that is heading both to the liver from the bowel and to the bowel from the aorta, which is giving blood supply from the heart to the organs. And unfortunately, location-wise, because the pancreas is sitting right on top of those blood vessels, many times the cancer might be involving those blood vessels. And we have different ways to describe those. And those are the two other buckets that I talked about. So in one case, those blood vessel, the tumor in the pancreas is kind of close to them, maybe even touching, but a, a good surgeon could get them out, if you will. Um, we call that borderline resectable cancers. And they're usually stage two. Sometimes they can be stage one. Um, and so that's why the staging number doesn't really help us in this case. Um, and then the third bucket is those blood vessels are totally kind of encased. And it doesn't matter how good of a surgeon you have, there's just too much tumor to take out. Um, and so we call those um, locally advanced and unresectable. And it's fancy words, but what it means is that we can't get it all out right now, but it hasn't spread. So it's not stage four. And so based on what we see on imaging, um, as well as what trials are available, um, some, uh, we would kind of plan different, we would give different recommendations on what's the treatment. Um, so totally within the pancreas, one option is going straight to surgery totally within the pancreas. Another option is to consider a clinical trial, which we have active right now. One trial giving chemotherapy before surgery. Um, totally metastatic, meaning there's spread to the liver or somewhere else. Then unfortunately, surgery would not be helpful. And then I would send this patient to my medical oncologist to kind of think of what is the best therapy for this person from a chemotherapy standpoint? And then these buckets in the middle where the vessels are, are, are the blood vessels are, are, are being touched or totally encased. Um, we would also consider giving chemotherapy first with a possibility of surgery. So, um, so this is, these are really complicated discussions. And I think that um, I always do them with a medical oncologist, with a tumor board, but I kind of discuss all of the options with the patient before sending them. And again, I have patients coming to me with no diagnosis and I'm doing the evaluation. I have patients coming to me with a diagnosis of pancreas cancer. And now I have to look at the imaging and decide what's best for them. 
um, with obviously their goals in mind. And then I have patients that are coming to me through a discussion board where everyone thinks uh, where it's been discussed with other specialists. And then they say, well, maybe you should have surgery first. And so, so it's, um, it's a team approach. Um, hopefully that was helpful. Yeah, absolutely. But it did leave me with a question about, um, some of the other cancers that we've talked about, you can take out partial pieces and bits of, of other organs or bone or whatever. But that, I remember there was one that we couldn't, I think it might've been um, maybe the gallbladder uh, where the whole thing has to come out. I could be wrong. I can't remember which one it was. What's the, what about the pancreas? Do you have to take out the entire pancreas or can you like cut half a pancreas and still get functionality? out? Yeah, that's a really great question. So it turns out, um, that we think of the pancreas in maybe um, four surgical options. Um, but in general, it's two. It's a right-sided or left-sided. Um, we use those blood vessels that I mentioned as a, as a kind of marker of uh, what we call the neck of the pancreas. Um, and it's a, just a little to the right of the middle of the body. Okay. And to the right of that is what we call the head of the pancreas. And to remove that is a Whipple procedure, um, which requires taking out uh, sometimes, but not always part of the stomach, but the small bowel, the duodenum, the bile duct, the gallbladder. So it's a right-sided. Then um, otherwise, we think of the left-sided resection or what we call a distal pancreatectomy occasionally the patient has a tiny, tiny little thing right in the middle of the pancreas. And you think, gosh, left or right doesn't work. It's too much. Um, and so we might do what we call a central pancreatectomy. We don't do it often, but there are some reasons to do it. And it's like taking out a segment. <laughs> and then we have to obviously reconstruct it all. Um, and then the last option I would say is a removal of the whole pancreas. And it's a, we try to avoid that in general. Um, and the reason for that is that we talked about the last function of the, or the, not last, but one of the functions of the pancreas is to make insulin. And it turns out that the insulin making cells are throughout the pancreas. It turns out there's more in the tail of the pancreas than anywhere else. Um, but in any case, you can remove 95% of a pancreas um, in a healthy person who doesn't have prediabetes and um, family history of diabetes, and you will not cause diabetes. But if you remove the entire pancreas, you're causing diabetes. Huh. So, um, and it's okay to have diabetes if that's the last option, but we don't try to make that your first option. Right. Yeah. I would, uh, I'd like to jump in and just add some. Uh, some numbers. Um, okay. So in the United States and, and with our listening audience, I would guess it's about half the United States and half is really all around the world. We've got listeners in Australia in sub-Saharan Africa and, uh, Singapore in Northern Europe and Western Europe. So it's been pretty great. But anyway, in the U S cause this is where we're talking from. There's 64,000 patients diagnosed with cancer of the pancreas, the type we're talking about, uh, which is about 85% of all of pancreas cancer. 
Um, it's about 85% of all pancreas cancer. So it's about 64,000 of them in the U.S. a year, and it's the fourth leading cause of cancer-related death in the U.S. Worldwide, it's the seventh leading cause of cancer-related death in both men and women, according to the World Health Organization. Um, it seems to be a bit higher incidence in you know, the more industrialized uh, economies. And the highest incidence is in North America, the high income areas of the Asia Pacific and Western and Central Europe. Um, it's rare to happen before the age of 45. It, it does once in a while. But so if for anyone listening, if you're 40 and you've got ab abdominal pain, it's still more likely to be something else. Uh, it can happen before 45, but it's rare. And it's mostly between ages 65 and 69 for men, that's the peak incidence, and a little later for women, 75 to 79. It varies a little bit by sex and race and socioeconomic status and, and things like that. The majority of pancreatic cases are advanced local regionally, meaning, um, meaning that it, it isn't something that a surgeon can resect. Uh, probably uh, 80 to 85% of patients are going to go straight to Dr. Schlegel instead of to Dr. Galka or myself, because either it's already metastatic or it's just, its characteristics are such that a surgeon can't re resect them because it's involving key structures. Uh, the stages, as we said, we talked about the size of the tumor and the lymph nodes, and we break it into four stages, roughly one, two, three, and four. And the best category to be in is called stage 1A. And with all the imaging and whatnot in Western societies, we're getting a greater um, incidence of finding people early enough that they're still 1A. And, and importantly, over the past uh, 20 years or so, the survival of stage 1A pancreatic cancer has doubled from about uh, 45% in 2004 to 84% in 2020. Uh, so, and that's all earlier detection and, and more effective treatment. So those are some details I wanted to share with the listening audience. And, uh, and, and I wanted to also bump over to Peter and ask, how does, how does he look at treatment compared to, you know, with the surgeon, we're like, let's just cut this thing out. And then we leave the hard work to you. Dr. Galka, uh, made a, a good point about the reception of, of pancreatic cancer if it is resectable, and those are really the only people that are curable. The converse of that, the opposite, is that if it's unresectable, it's advanced, and unfortunately, it's usually the vast, vast majority of times a terminal illness, and so there is no cure. And nobody likes to hear that, that it's not a cure, but we have to be realistic in terms of going forward, and what does it mean to have advanced metastatic pancreatic cancer? Well, you're not going to be cured, but there are a lot of things we can do to slow it down, to improve quality of life and to extend survivorship. And so we want to do that. But really, it is a, a sad moment to say you've crossed the line and this cancer from all these fancy studies that we've done doesn't look like we can take that out. Uh, I, I think when uh, patients are going through the journey with pancreatic cancer and they have had all their studies and then the surgeon 
surgical oncologist, medical oncologist is going to sit down with them and say, we just discussed your case in tumor board. We looked at all this information, the pathology, the images, we talked with the radiation doctor, all this and that. And we've uh, determined what the best course of action is. We always want to be able to be as optimistic as we can. And if there's a potential for a cure, we want to go down that route. And so for the age two and three, the uh, locally advanced, a borderline resectable, I think that's the, the scientific term we use, borderline resectable, we go through a whole bunch of different steps to say, can we can we shrink it? But really the object is, is that if we can resect you, you can be cured. People can go live normal lives. On the other hand, if it is not resectable, if it's metastasized, it is in a, a terminal situation, our goal is palliative to slow it down, improve quality of life, but not to cure. It sounds like the position of your tumor really sort of determines your viability. Like if it's around those blood vessels, you're, you've got a very, your, your chances of um, having a surgical removal are, are slim to none. And if it's, but if it's in an area off to the left, I guess, um, in the, in the tail of the tube of toothpaste. It's, it's, it's a really nuanced thing because if it's right on the vessels, then it's a problem because it's on these major vessels. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what Dr. Galka was talking about locally advanced. Maybe we can hit it with chemotherapy and radiation and shrink it such that we can then go after and, and peel it away from the vessels. If it's just to the side of the vessels and involving the, the, the end of the common bile duct, but not the vessels, then you're going to turn yellow. Everyone's going to see it. They call us and we can take it out. If it's in the tail, it sounds like that would be a better deal. But the problem is it tends to grow and grow without anyone ever noticing. It doesn't. Oh, that's so true. Exactly. So unfortunately, those patients are usually unresectable. Unless they had a pancreatitis or some reason to have imaging, that tumor can grow with relatively minor symptoms. I'm not saying they're negative. Those patients usually do have abdominal pain, weight loss. That's worse than like more than what I ask patients is, have you lost weight? And they say yes or no. And I say, if they say yes, I said, well, did you work for it? Or did it come easier than you expected? Because you know what? As we all know, that weight doesn't come off unless you work for it, right? But if you're losing weight and you're really not changing your diet, something's wrong, especially if you're 65 or older, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, so, but unfortunately, those left-sided tumors, like Paul was saying, can get so big and now they're involving other things or they're involving vessels, I'm sorry, vessels that are right next to, but not in, not the ones I was talking about. And now they can't be resected. So it's kind of a, uh, it's terrible. You're damned in either way. Um, usually the jaundice is the, is at least a sign that we can find, you know, um, that can prompt imaging. When someone's determined to have stage one resectable pancreatic cancer, then they're taken to surgery. Uh, if they have 
advanced metastatic disease, then they generally go through a whole body treatment chemotherapy. At least that's what's recommended. There are some molecular based therapies, immunotherapies used in some cases, but that's the minority of people. So that's why we have clinical trials to come up with better systemic therapies. Um, when people have the locally advanced, they say, well, should we cut it out? There is a big risk to benefit ratio in terms of doing the, the Whipple procedure. And, and I think that would be important for our surgeon to, to comment on that. If you have pancreatic cancer, say, well, I got nothing to lose. You know, if this is resecting and can cut out, I can be cured. And if it can't, well, you know, so be it. But the, the problem is that the surgery is one of the, the most uh, labor intensive and difficult surgeries there, there are from a, a medical oncologist point of view. Uh, so I just want to really impress that it's not, well, you don't have any other options just to do it, but there are some major costs. So. Dr. Galco, if you could just talk about what happens with the pancreatic surgery and how long it takes you in the OR and how long the recovery is, basically. Sure, absolutely. Um, so again, we kind of split up the pancreas into the left-sided or right-sided. So um, let's easy route. Let's say the left-sided part of the pancreas. Um, there really is... Um, nothing else impeding you aside from moving the stomach out of the way to get to the left-sided pancreas. Um, and so you see a tumor, you go past it, you want to have what we call negative margins, um, which means when we cut the tissue, there's no tumor at the edges. Um, and we can either staple or I prefer to sew the pancreas so that the end point isn't leaking pancreas juice. And then you remove the left side of the pancreas, um, you will remove the spleen. Um, and that's because the some of the blood supply is heading towards the spleen. Um, or I'm sorry, the blood supply that is heading towards the spleen is many times intimately attached to the pancreas that you're removing. And also the lymph nodes, um, which are another way that cancer can spread and travel, are uh, attached to that um, pancreas and then heading towards the spleen. So left-sided um, removal is called a distal pancreatectomy and splenectomy, and that's kind of standard of care. Um, that, that patient will stay in the hospital for about five days and need about six weeks of recuperation. Um, the risk of that type of surgery is pancreas leak. Um, so where we closed off the pancreas, um, it wants to empty its contents further to the right of the body, the normal way. However, where we cut the pancreas, it may leak. Um, and um, leaks can be minor versus major. And um, people can have very um, mild courses versus uh, major complication can ultimately possibly lead to death. Um, thankfully, that's very um, um, uncommon, but um, I won't say it hasn't happened. Um, so the more complicated surgery is to the right side of the pancreas, and that's a pancreas tumor that was involving the bile duct. And um, as we said, to the right side of um, the neck of the pancreas, and that's where all of those blood vessels that we were describing. Um, that entails taking 
um, about a fourth of the pancreas in, in uh, kind of overall <clears throat> volume, taking the small bowel, taking the bile duct or part of the bile duct. So that's the passageway from the liver down to the bowel, taking the gallbladder, and in many cases, taking um, part of the stomach. Um, and so freeing up all those tissues and then removing them and then putting it back together, connecting the stomach to the bowel so that food will pass, connecting the pancreas to the bowel, connecting the bile duct or liver passageway to the bowel so that you still have pancreas juice and you still have bile to break down your foods and putting it all together. Um, that procedure takes me six hours. I mean, on a good day, maybe four and a half, but, um, uh, I will say I take my time. Um, and so it's an average six hour procedure. Um, the hospital course is usually on the order of seven to nine days and recuperation is usually about eight weeks. Um, and, uh, there are a slew of complications, but even though we sewed, um, pancreas to bowel, bile duct to bowel, stomach to bowel, each one of those um, passageways could have a problem with the connection. Um, still, the most common is, well, I wouldn't say the most common, about 20% of the time, we see a pancreas leakage. And now, because we're on the right side of the body, where there's more important blood vessels, uh, a leak although still most commonly minor, can lead to bigger complications like massive bleeding and massive infections. Um, so this is not a surgery that you just consider willy-nilly. It's something that we, we have to consider, A, is it possible? Um, B, is the patient fit enough? C, can they handle any number of complications that may occur? And then in the case where we have advanced disease, I think the last thing to consider is, would we be doing justice to this patient when we are pretty aware that they are going to have more advanced disease than what can be removed? Um, and so that is why the consideration of maybe giving therapy up front. And I guess the last thing I want to say, which people um, may not recognize, but surgery is great. I'm a surgeon. I'm all for surgery. However, what we have recognized is that surgery alone is not sufficient in this cancer. So even if I did the best surgery I possibly could and the patient had the smallest cancer they possibly could before we diagnosed it, there is still a high chance of recurrence, which means tumor coming back or spread somewhere else within two years. And so what we've recognized, and we have excellent trials over the years to show us this, is that what is most important is surgery, but it is insufficient. It's not good enough. You need chemotherapy also. Um, this is a disease that spreads early, even when we can't see it. Um, that's a, that's an excellent summary, Eva. Thank you very much. And it's a great segue into the, uh, 
the last part of the show, which is, you know, when we touch base on where we show what's coming around the corner in the treatment of pancreatic cancer, such as uh, a paper that you and I had talked about, uh, which was the subject of if I have a pancreatic cancer, should I have surgery first or chemotherapy first? Well, I, I well, I, I think the important thing is to know that the micro metastases or seeds uh, in most cases of pancreatic cancer, even if resectable, even a slow, a small, do exist. And, and the, the chemotherapy does kill some of these seeds before they germinate and take root. We've known these principles with breast cancer for about 30 years, colorectal cancer, 20 years. So it's the same idea that these microscopic seeds have left before the surgeon even gets to the operation. Having said that, the chemotherapy can be effective and kill the cancer, not just shrink it if it's in a, micro, a microscopic amount. So we really in, in, uh, encourage that. There's a question about does the chemo work better in the front or uh, afterwards? And I think we know for a fact that for all these borderline people that were not stage one, they're not stage four, where are they at? There's a glimmer of hope. We, we use chemotherapy when we shrink it. In many cases, it shrinks and then it does make the, uh, the cancer resectable. I think that's the important thing. The trials are still out there in terms of determining what's the best course, but I think the bottom line is that people who've been diagnosed with pan pancreatic adenocarcinoma do need chemotherapy, and it is real chemotherapy. There's a lot of toxicity side effects. It does take a lot out of people for several months, and the recovery also is several months, but it does show very good evidence of working to prolong people's survivorship and to increase the number of people that are cured. It sounds like there's no pure um, radiological or uh, chemotherapy that you can uh, address pancreatic cancer with, is there? Oh, there, there's, there's, there's definitely uh, chemotherapy. It just doesn't work as well as you want. We want it to work you know, 99% of the time and only have 1% side effects. It doesn't work like that. We have it work maybe flip of the coin, maybe a little bit better. And in terms of side effects, likewise, it's a flip of the coin. Um, so, you know, the clinical trials are looking for that that balance that way in favor of the, 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 the efficacy rather than the side effects or toxicity. And the radiation therapy can be important, but for this this type of cancer, it's usually uh, playing the role of it's it's a, an additional type of treatment. It's not the primary treatment for this yeah. cancer. The, Correct. The, the biggest question that I have, um, Dr. Eva, is after you've taken out all of these additional parts like gallbladder and spleen, and does that mean that I'm, if, I, if I'm this patient, um, I'm going to be on like a chemical regimen for a long time in terms of drugs that are going to help me duplicate whatever you took out did? You know, the good thing is no. Um, so... Um, if we're talking about left-sided, um, we have, uh, the spleen is a filter for our blood cells, um, and it does help us fight a few infections. However, thankfully, we have vaccinations, which are not new. They've been around for a long time, but now being used more effectively, um, timing-wise with removal of the spleen. And so patients with a left-sided tumor and the spleen being removed can be live normal lives. Um, my recommend we give them vaccinations for the, um, again, bacteria that 
the spleen is helpful in um, treating. And um, at this time, two of those vaccinations are good for life and one needs to be rebooted, re, uh, if you will, um, in five years. Um, so normal life. Okay. Um, the right side of the pancreas. Um, yes, it sounds like we're removing a whole bunch of stuff, but thankfully, um, we're rerouting the things that you have left over. And so we haven't touched the liver. The liver is what's what makes bile. So as long as the bile passes into the, um, gut, um, you will break down your fatty foods. Um, we likewise are connecting the remaining pancreas, um, with the bowel. And so pancreatic juice is present. Thankfully, if the pancreas, the person's pancreas is not making enough of that pancreatic juice or enzyme, then we have a, um, pill form of replacement for that. So, and then the last part is the insulin making. Um, if there are really not enough insulin, um, cells in the remaining pancreas, um, then, or the insulin that they are making is not functional because the patient's obese or other reasons for diabetes, um, then we have therapies for it. Um, but the two weeks, uh, I'm sorry, two months of recovery after surgery is really just kind of getting used to this new anatomy. Appetite is a little different. Bowel, stomach doesn't relax as it should in normal patient. All of these things kind of resolve and um, you wouldn't be able to tell a person who had a Whipple next to someone who didn't um, after some time. So thankfully you get back to normal. Yeah. Thank you. Sure. Peter, uh, I know you have an interest in things like tumor vaccines and, and so forth. Is there anything coming down the pike uh, that you're following that you're tracking? such as that? Uh, yeah, there was a recent uh, paper that used KRAS, which is a, a tumor uh, uh, antigen that's uh, expressed on a lot of cancer cells, particularly pancreatic cancer. And we're using that as a target for a vaccine. And it's in, in early stage trials has been pretty effective in terms of combating the pancreatic cancer that has a specific uh, sign, a, a molecular signature, if you will. And tumor vaccines are something of a holy grail for cancer treatment. It always seems like something that should work. And, and the NIH has invested, I think, well over a billion dollars into trying to find something that works. But it's always been elusive. Uh, but it, like this KRAS one that you were talking about, I was looking at the paper that you sent me. It looks pretty interesting that, you know, it's early on in the process, but they are encouraged in their phase one trial that maybe this time they might be onto something that will work. Can you describe what the mechanism is of a tumor vaccine? Well, I, I think it's, you're, you're training your immune system to see something as foreign and to get rid of it, use your immune system. And in fact, we're, we're using what we call checkpoint inhibitors for a number of, of cancers that promote the immune system for fighting the cancer with really remarkable results. Melanoma ha has a, uh, been treated very successfully with immunotherapy. It's now standard care, non-small cell lung cancer has been successfully treated with uh, immunotherapy. Um, but turning to Paul's question about the vaccinations is say, you know, how do we find this target only on cancer cells and not everything else? What is, special about this particular cancer cell. But I, I think 
for one thing that we're just learning more and more about the cancer cell, what makes it unique? How can we target it? So that's really where clinical trials are heading in. Yes, we haven't been as successful as we'd like, but we're moving forward. And we just got to keep at the, the research and it's going to pay off dividends. For lung cancer, for most of my career, we just had chemo and it was pretty a very sad situation. But then the checkpoint inhibitors came and it just really changed it. Uh, malignant melanoma, you wouldn't believe how different of a world that is with, with uh, having immunotherapy for people with advanced melanoma. Um, I will also say that some of the cancer vaccination trials went on for some of the COVID vaccination, some of the technology that was used. Uh, so I don't know what your feelings are with COVID, but uh, COVID vaccinations, but I, I think the scientific is, yeah, they're, they're good. They're not great. They have side effects, but the, the research was taken directly from cancer research in terms of manufacturing these vaccinations in a, such a rapid fashion. If I have an inoperable I can't remember the word you guys used. Um, non-sectable. Uh, non-resectable. There we go. Yeah. Non-resectable uh, tumor. And it seems like maybe it's more advanced. Um, how do I get into a study so that I might benefit from one of those uh, vaccinations? How, how, where might I go to find out how to get into a study? Generally, the tertiary care centers, uh, I'm more of a local uh, clinic, a community level. So we do run some clinical trial, but not the big academic trials. If you're, you know, in the, in the major cities, they always have cancer centers and most oncologists have access to some sort of registry or, or regional experts they can contact and uh, state, you know, who's uh, interested in and, and what kind of cancer, what some of the specifics. So the doctor will, will recommend that? Well, uh, any doctor that is like an associate professor or assistant professor or whatever, anyone who's involved with teaching is frequently involved with, with trials. Is that fair to say? What if my doctor is not, though? How do I? Yeah, so you know? I, I was going to say the other thing that can be done is to go to um, uh, PANCAN, um, Pancreatic Cancer Network. Um, which is a non-for-profit um, agency that is um, that has a, a lot of resources on clinical trials going on in the in the country, um, and provides both emotional support, nutritional support, all kinds of things for patients with pancreas cancer, as well as um, going to clinicaltrials.gov, um, which both oncologists, surgical, like regular people, uh, professionals can go to, but also um, the layperson can go to and look for clinical trials that are available across the country. And um, there are some clinical trials that um, are multi uh, within the, you know, throughout the country that are as part of big, uh, what we call cooperative groups, uh, cancer um, um, uh, association, uh, or what is it? The American society of clinical oncology, um, and other groups that are doing big trials across the country, but there are also smaller trials going on at individual universities. And so, you know, if you live on the West coast, but the trials on the East coast, you can only do it on the East coast, but the only way to find out is to go to 
clinicaltrials.gov or our, um, but PanCan is an excellent resource that's around the country and is really geared for the patient, not I'll, for the clinician. I'll yeah. put Pan-can. the links to, I'll, I'll put the yeah. links to both of those in the show notes. So Perfect. people can just go to the show notes and find the link and, and, and access it. Yeah. And then, and through that, you can also speak to actually a person, right? Not, um, um, and that can help guide you on, oh my God, I'm totally overwhelmed. I live in, you know, the middle of nowhere. Where do I go? Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 Well, all right. Well, Dr. Galka, Eva, my dear friend, thank you very much for, for joining us. Uh, to, I think speak for Michael and Peter and, and myself. It's been a delight and, and, uh, we will invite you back uh, anytime you want. And, and hopefully if, patients have any questions, they can reach out directly. Uh, the, the, the email is letters at Paul Brian Roach, P-A-U-L-B-R-Y-A-N-R-O-A-C-H.com. You can send me a letter directly and, uh, and we can answer your questions. Uh, thanks, thanks everybody. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for coming. That was fun.